Thanks, guys. This is like taller than usual. It's freaking me out. Um, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You guys good? Everybody all right? Okay, good. Did you have coffee this morning? All right, good, because I was up later than I wanted to be last night. And so I had coffee, so I'm ready to rock and roll. Uh, <clears throat> I told some people last night that the problem with me staying up late on a Saturday night is I'm the only one that doesn't get to sleep during the sermon. So I just want to let you know, if you sleep today during the sermon, I could squirt you with this bottle from just about anywhere, okay? So something to keep in mind. We've been doing this series called Better Together, <clears throat> talking a little bit about the church, what it is to be the church, what does God's vision for his church look like? When we think about the church, what do we really mean when we use the word church? Are we talking about a place? Are we talking about a program? Are we talking about a group of people? And we've been sort of unpacking all of this. And last week, we started talking about this issue of unity in the church. And we just started to uh, talk about that a little bit. And basically, what we discovered last week, at least if you were paying attention, at least one thing that you should have got out of last week's message is this, church unity is a good thing, right? Right. <clears throat> Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the early 60s, there was a beautiful middle-class suburban neighborhood uh, in, in uh, suburban Atlanta, Georgia area called Kirkwood. And, you know, as you, as you think about this, I don't know if any of you have spent any time in the South, but, you know, these are, these are nice homes with a lot of space on big lots, a lot of white picket fences, a lot of well-trimmed yards, you know, not, not wealthy, not, not ostentatious, but just nice and clean. And everybody just uh, kind of bought their homes at the same time, raised their families together in this neighborhood. And, and this neighborhood, which the neighborhood is called Kirkwood, just kind of grew up together. And everybody had great relationships. They planted some churches in the area and the churches began to flourish and great things were happening in the middle of the 20th century there in suburban Atlanta. And there were several good churches in town and, and not the least of which was probably the, the most well-known church in town. The, the one that was uh, attended by the most people was called Kirkwood Baptist Church. And they had been there a long time. They were one of the first churches there in that community. They had great facilities. Um, they had a very welcoming atmosphere. If you visited Kirkwood, you, you felt like you mattered. You felt like people cared about you. You were invited to be a part of people's lives. They would take you out to lunch afterwards. They would gather together and have potlucks and eat in one another's homes and just kind of do life together. They were good at a lot of the things that churches need to be good at. They had the priorities of evangelism and fellowship and discipleship. They were doing a lot of community outreach. They had a great Christian ed program, a lot of kids coming up through the church. And, and best of all, they didn't have any strife in their midst. We talked about this a little bit last week, how, how unity in the church is so important. And when you begin to have strife and division, it can spin out of control really fast. But they had never really had to deal with that. You, you could really say uh, they're, a, they're a model of Christian unity at Kirkwood Baptist Church. And it wasn't just them. There were actually uh, this six churches there in the community. And those six churches actually 
all of the pastors were friends. They gathered together at least once a month to pray together. They did uh, community outreach programs together, all six churches pitching in. At least once or twice a year, they would have a giant community worship service where all the churches came together to worship. So it wasn't just unity in the local congregation. It was unity in the whole community. And, and Christians were really, you know, sort of having an impact in that area. They, they prayed for each other. They, they, you know, the churches would share prayer requests so that you were praying for the people in other churches in your community and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it was just this tremendous show of unity. And, and I forgot to say something. It was, it was a middle-class community in Georgia in the early 60s. So, of course, Kirkwood Baptist Church, just like every other church in the area, was all white. There was one problem. Black families started encroaching upon their community. Now, now, if you understand anything about the South in the middle of the 20th century, uh, you know, this is not Southern California we're talking about here, right? And so there's, there's significant segregation even today in the Atlanta area. In fact, significant segregation in every big city in America. Don't let anybody tell you racism is dead. So there, there's tremendous segregation. There had been literally racial zoning laws throughout Georgia that had black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods and you could not live in a white neighborhood if you were a black family. It was as simple as that. Now, of course, that went to the Supreme Court and that got thrown out and those racial zoning laws now had become illegal by the early 60s, but it didn't change anything. There were still black neighborhoods and there were still white neighborhoods and often railroad tracks that separated them and everybody knew which was the black area and which was the white area and that's the way that it was. And, and the, the black population after World War II was growing, as was the entire population in America and certainly in the South. And none of the churches in Kirkwood had a single black member. None of the churches in Kirkwood ever had a black visitor. It was just not done. And as the country's consciousness to civil rights and racial issues was awakening there in the early to mid-60s, the churches in Kirkwood began to see the situation. And they began to realize that they had to respond in some way. And so those churches, they formed a committee, because that's what churches do. <clears throat> and, and they formed a committee to work with the local politicians and even the local real estate agents is this cool? Is this what the church should be doing? They formed a committee to work with the politicians and work with the real estate agents so that they could guarantee that no black families would move into Kirkwood. And the church poured its time and effort into this because from their perspective, once one or two black families began to move into a white neighborhood, the prices, the property values would go down, the, the neighborhood would change, and, and you would have this whole white flight situation going on, and they didn't want anything to do with that. They had white picket fences, and they had finely trimmed lawns, and they didn't want to have to deal with any of that stuff. And sure enough, pretty soon a black family did move in, and then another and another, and, and property values began to plummet. White families began to sell. That led to houses uh, prices dropping more, and the shift was on. Before long, 
the whole neighborhood was changing. And the church there at Kirkwood Baptist was shrinking. In fact, in seven months, they lost 119 members from their role. So Kirkwood Baptist Church did what churches do. They called a meeting, formed a committee, find a way to solve the problem. So what was their solution? They pray and fast and come to a united decision that would forever change their neighborhood? Kind of. In May of 1960. 1961, in May of 1961, the people of that church came together as one and they voted by a 90% majority to sell the church property for half its appraised value and leave the neighborhood before things got so bad that it was too late. Church unity is not always a good thing. See, we talk about church unity and we go, yeah, if we could just get united. Guys, listen, the body of Christ has some stains on it from being united over the wrong things. And we have to decide as God's followers how serious we are about actually following God or whether we're more serious about our own comfort and our own opinions and our own ideas. And And we could get united around all kinds of stuff, but there's a whole lot of stuff that just doesn't deserve the attention of God's people. And then there's a whole lot of other stuff that deserves the attention of God's people in one way, but we give it attention in the other way. And and Christians, by and large, have this mixed reputation in our country. On the one hand, some people think of Christians as the ones who start the charity organizations, the ones who, who have the crisis pregnancy centers, the ones who have the low-income child care facilities, the ones who are reaching out to the homeless and helping people, and we have that reputation among some. But among others, we have the, the reputation of being on the wrong side of almost every issue. And, and just because you're united doesn't mean you're united around the right things. And so one of the things I want us to do, I didn't want to just leave you thinking, hey, if the church is just united, everything's going to be right. Listen, you know what? In the 1930s, the German church was united behind Hitler and against the Jews, and the church was wrong. So unity is not always a good thing. It it kind of depends on what the uniting factors are, doesn't it? But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I I want to lay a foundation for what I'm going to say today by asking you to to think for a minute about who God is, okay? You don't have to look this up. We'll be in in our Bible soon enough, but I just want to read this to you, and I just want you to listen. I just want you to hear what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, As Paul is talking about a a number of issues, and he just sort of in the middle of a verse just breaks into this. This is 1 Timothy 6, 15. He just says, speaking of Jesus, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Isn't that awesome? 
Isn't that, I just, he's just talking about something. It's like he's writing and then all of a sudden he gets this thought about God. He goes, I just have to interrupt my thought. And right in the middle of a verse, he just goes, let me tell you about God. He dwells in unapproachable light. This God with whom we have to do, he, he is above all and before all and everything was made by him and for him and through him and all of it to his glory. I want us to do something together just for a second, okay? This will, be, this will help you stay awake, okay? Ready? Um, I, I just want us all at the same time, just, just take the deepest breath you can possibly take. Take a, take a really deep breath. And then let it out. You, you've been breathing all morning, and unless you're sick or something like that, You haven't thought about it once. But the scripture says that if he doesn't give you that breath, you won't have it. Okay? So so sometimes I think, especially those of us who have been Christians for a while and we've been around church and we've done all, we can sing songs. We know how to lift our hands and close our eyes and all that kind of stuff. But really in our hearts, we sometimes forget who it is we're worshiping, right? He is above all. He is the creator of everything. And so you don't need some cause for the church to rally around to be unified. You don't even need a doctrinal stance for the church to rally around and be unified. You don't need some sort of vision that a pastor gives you from the pulpit so we can rally around and be unified. We have Jesus. We have God to rally around, right? And that's our source of unity. And guys, it's being tested. And it's going to continue to be tested because as time goes by and the political climate that we live in, like everybody's got an opinion about everything and not everybody that is sitting next to you in your row shares your opinion. And if you're going to just rally around your shared opinions, guess what's going to happen to the church? Shatter. I mean, I'm talking about good Christian people believe very differently about all kinds of issues. So if we're just going to gather around an issue because some preacher got up in front of us or some politician gave a great speech or we read something on Instagram or Facebook that lit our fire, and if that's going to be what we just decide where we stand based on that, we will fall as the body of Christ because we have to be united around God and God alone. Don't forget who he is. Listen, I know you have opinions and I I know you have thoughts and you have biases and uh, preferences when it comes to the church. We all do. But there's just one thing. I probably said it every week and I'm probably saying it every week during this series. It's not about you. It's not your church. It's not about me or the elders of this church who make all these decisions. It's not even about our community out there that we're trying to reach and what, what they think they need and how we can impress them. It's not about any of those kind of things. The church is His church. And we're about Him. And I don't want to offend you, but when it comes to the church, it's just not really about us. And we got to remember that it's about Him. And whatever there may be that separates us, whatever there may be that divides us as individuals, and there are legitimate things that separate us. As Christians, we have one thing in common that makes those differences seem very small. 
we all together as one body belong to him, the one who dwells in an unapproachable light. So let's not forget. When we talk about unifying factors in the church, let's remember that our diversity makes us strong as long as our unity is founded in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Not even your love for them. By your love for one another, church, they will know you're a follower of Christ because of your love for one another. So I just want to play a what if game for a second. What if we prayed for one another the way we pray for ourselves? What, what if I thought your needs were as important as... What if, what if I took what the Scripture says in Philippians 2 and I said your needs are more important than my needs? What would happen if we prayed for people that we barely know in the body of Christ the way we pray for the people we love the most? I mean, I, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one with this issue, but like... I pray for my children and grandchildren and my wife relentlessly, relentlessly. I mean, they're always on my mind. They're always in my heart. I care deeply about what happens. I don't stop. I pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for my kids. But I don't always pray for your kids. I don't always think about your kids. What if... The body of Christ prayed for others the way we pray for ourselves. What if pastors prayed for other churches to be successful in their ministries? Just this morning, I did what I often do. I just sat there with a list of pastors and churches that I know, and I prayed, sat in my office and prayed that God would bring people who need to hear the gospel, that God would equip those pastors to preach the word, that people would actually worship God, that those churches would impact their communities, that, that, that those churches would grow and, and, and um, uh, make a difference in the world around them. What if pastors everywhere were praying for other churches? Guys, man, Sunday morning comes around and I am just on my knees. God, please bring somebody to Grace Fellowship today. God, please. You know, I know some of them are waking up right now and they're looking at their alarm clocks and they're going, oh, I just need a day to sleep in. God, wake them up, please. So if that happens to you on Sundays, that's me. Sorry. And, and I pray. And I, I mean, and I pray that God will prepare your hearts. I mean, it was just praying as a lot of you were driving in today. God, just as they drive in, prepare their hearts because I know how many of us on our drive in, our minds are in the wrong place we're having an argument with our spouse. We're yelling at our kids in the back seat. We are not ready to worship God. And we walk in and start shaking hands and smiling and pretending like everything's cool. I pray that God will do something different in your hearts every Sunday. You know what? We need to pray for other churches that way. Guys, listen, I don't care if Grace Fellowship is the biggest, most impressive church in Duarte or San Gabriel Valley. I pray, you know, there's this church, I won't name them because you'll go there. there no, there's this, there's this church, uh, Monrovia Fellowship, that started just a couple years ago in Monrovia, just exploded. All of a sudden, I've been working, working, and working in Duarte, and here's you guys, right? <laughs> Monrovia Fellowship, like Albert Tate steps up and starts to preach, and everybody's like, whoa, I'm going to this church. Like, Come on, man. 
So you know what I started doing? I just started praying for Albert. Started praying for that church. They're making an impact, you guys. I want to see that impact grow. It is not my church. It is not your church. It is his church. What if we prayed like that? What if we gave like we took God's call to give seriously? And I know you're thinking, okay, here comes the thing about money. I don't care. Keep all your stinking money. I don't care. You know what? You need to give time. You need to be give compassion. You need to give energy. You need to give people rides. You need to give visits to hospital rooms. There are so many things you should be giving because you're a Christian, because Jesus is in your heart. What if we started to give time and compassion and money and and resources and forgiveness and care? What if we cared? What if God's church cared and, and, and that when we heard about situ, situations with people, we didn't think first in terms of our political point of view, but we thought those are people and we cared about them as people. What if we cared the way that Christ cared, where he was always busy and always on his way somewhere, but it seems like in the scripture, every time he was on his way somewhere, there was some needy person crying at the side of the road, right? And what did the disciples do? Come on, Lord, we got to go. We got an appointment, right? They were like traveling secretaries. And Jesus always said, you guys, shut up. I mean, in Hebrew or something, he said that. And then, and he would go over and he like touched lepers, and pray with people. And oh, here's a funeral. Maybe I'll just raise that guy from the dead, right? What, and, and what compelled him to do that? Was it a ministry tactic? It was compassion. What if we cared like that? See, see, we don't need to get united around a cause. We need to get united around a person. What if we cared like that? The marks of the church of Jesus Christ are the heart of Jesus Christ, the service of Jesus Christ, the compassion of Jesus Christ. If we're his people who are called by his name, then whatever our differences may be, we should be rallying around him and his fame and his glory and his honor and his praise and his exaltation. I love the book of Ephesians. I told you we'd get there. Take the book of Ephesians, okay? Sorry, that, not, none of that was in my notes. That's all introduction. Book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Okay? New Testament, maybe 80% of the way through your Bible. You'll find it. It starts with an E. Ephesians, chapter 3. I love these first three chapters of Ephesians. I read them over and over and over again because, it, it, listen, if you start to doubt yourself, you start to wonder whether you fit into God's plan, you start to wonder whether everything's going to be okay, I just encourage you, open the book of Ephesians, start at chapter 1, verse 1, and read at least the first three chapters and hear what God has to say about the fact that He loves you so much that by grace He saved you and gave you the faith to believe, called you out of the darkness, adopted you as his son or daughter, made you a part of the family of God with all of the rights and privileges therein. It's awesome to read and to go, oh, this is who I am in Christ. This is what God has done for me. I'm adopted. I'm given everything as a son of God. I'm loved unconditionally. But listen to how Paul wraps up that opening section, the first half of his letter. Listen to how he wraps it up. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse uh, 20. 
Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. It's, it's amazing the plan that God has for the church, his people, to bring him glory forever and ever and ever. The power of God is at work in us, not just in you. I mean, the power of God is at work in you, and the power of God is at work in me, but in a mystical, powerful, supernatural way, the power of God is at work in us because there's one Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is in you, and that Holy Spirit is in me, and that Holy Spirit is in every believer. So He is working His power in us, the power of God works in us, not just me, not just you, because it's his church, his family, his body, his team, whatever you want to call it. All the power works in us. For what reason? For his glory. For his glory. And then Paul starts the next section of his letter with the word, therefore. And when you see the word, therefore, you're supposed to ask, what is it? Therefore, right? Therefore refers back to what he was just talking about, which in this case is that whole three chapters. And the fact that we as the church, his adopted sons and daughters are supposed to bring him glory. So he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, we don't use that word implore very often. So let me just tell you what it means. It means he is begging you from the bottom of his heart. Paul says, I, I'm not just suggesting, I'm not just asking, I'm not just encouraging. I am like on my knees crying, calling out to you, and I beg you, please, Walk in a manner worthy of the high calling that you have received as his church. The high calling that we have received is what he just talked about, that the church would see his power flow through us and that would bring him glory. That is our high calling. There is no vision in your life, no interest, no passion that is more important than the high calling to honor God in the way that we walk. So how are we supposed to walk? Look, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're supposed to diligently preserve something, right? What are we supposed to diligently preserve? The unity of the unity in the Spirit. God Himself. We're supposed to make sure that we fight to preserve unity that is all about Him. And guys, I just feel like I'm a, I'm a, a herald just standing out on the edge of a cliff, shouting to a loud crowd and saying, I'm telling you, you have to pay attention to this. You have to know this because it's happening right now in the body of Christ. There are lines being drawn in the body of Christ by Christians that have never been drawn before. We just can't think of enough ways to divide ourselves. 
We just keep going, yeah, well, I disagree on this political topic, so I'm one of these Christians and you're one of those Christians. We, I disagree on this doctrine, so I'm one of these Christians and you're one of those Christians, and we're just dividing it up. We figure out what camp we're in and we just huddle with our little camp, and we're so excited that everybody in our camp believes like we do, and everybody else is the bad guys. And this is happening in the church in a way that I've never seen it happen before. We used to just argue really about doctrinal stuff. But now you almost never hear arguments about doctrinal stuff. It's all about social stuff and and issues of activity of the church in the world. And these are very, very important issues. But guys, it's dividing the church. I'm fine if you vote for somebody I didn't vote for for president. I am cool with it. I'm cool if you put stupid posts on Facebook that make me want to throw something at you. I'm cool with that, right? I'm cool if you like a different kind of music than I like. I'm cool if you eat different foods than I like. I'm cool if you disagree with me about some minor doctrine in scripture. I am cool with all about the, with all of that because I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to tolerate you and pray that you will tolerate me because we have something in common, our unity in the spirit. That's the source of our unity. See, that's what was wrong with the unity around racism in the churches in the South in the 60s and to a great degree still today. They were united all right, but their unity had nothing to do with the heart of the Spirit of God. So it's not enough to be united. God's calling us to a unity that is grounded in things like humility. You just hear the word humility and what comes to mind? Signs and and picketing and chanting, right? No, that's not humility, you guys. I'm not saying there's not a time to speak up. I'm saying watch your heart. Even if you have to speak up, are you speaking out of a heart of love and humility and grace and kindness and understanding that you are a deeply flawed individual yourself? Where's the humility even in the discussions that we're having? And gentleness. (laughs) When was the last time you saw two people disagree and walked away and went, well, that was gentle? (laughs) We just don't even see it. You know, I don't expect to see it in the world, but God wants to see it in his church. And when the world sees it in God's church, the world will wake up and notice him for who he is. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. We're supposed to be different. God has called us to love. That's the real spirit of unity. That's real peace. That's a real testimony to the watching eyes of the world. You see it? True, true Christian unity isn't about a cause. Not about a doctrine. It's not about a denomination. It's not about a racial identity. It's not about a political point of view. It's about our common bond in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And I know you may be going, my gosh, he's pounding this. He, he talked about this last week. He's, now he must have said it 10 times today. It's like, man, why is he going on? We get it. No, we don't. That's the problem. We don't. And so, you know, get mad at me. It wouldn't be the first time. I, I'm just going to be honest. The body of Christ must change in this area. And if we don't, we are kidding ourselves about the mission we say we're on. It's about our common bond in the spirit of Jesus Christ. I am, if I am one, 
with God through Christ. And you are one with God through Christ. If I am filled with the one and only Holy Spirit, and you are filled with the one and only Holy Spirit, does it really matter what country we come from? Does it really matter what race we are? Does it really matter about our age or our musical preferences? Does it matter about who we voted for for president? I know some of you are like, no, if you voted for this person, you're probably not saved, right? (laughs) None of this stuff matters compared to the significance of the bond that we have in the Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. If we're bound together by our unity in Jesus Christ himself, then what on earth can drive us apart? Again, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ and his glory. It's about the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit. But even while I remind us again and again ad nauseum that it's not about you, I don't want you to think that therefore you are not important in all this. You know, some of you, if you're not brand new around here, you will know that uh, this, this last year I had a medical emergency. Uh, I, I went to the doctor just not feeling right. And the next thing I knew it was open heart surgery. And, and I know you look at me and say, but you look so fit. <laughs> but you'd be surprised to know that that wasn't a joke. I don't know why you laughed. <laughs> you'd be surprised to know that it wasn't because my arteries were all clogged. It's because I was born with a heart defect that I knew nothing about. And I got to be 150 years old. And they looked at my heart and said, oh, this isn't going to work anymore. You need to have open heart surgery, and if you don't, you'll be dead within a year. And all of a sudden, I realized there's something called an aortic valve, and it has these three little flaps that open like this and let the blood flow. I was born with only two flaps, and mine's going like this, and I'm choking all the blood flow, right? And they said, enough, your heart can't handle it anymore. And they went and, I don't know, made steaks for somebody and gave me a cow valve and took that and put it in my heart and now I'm good. I'm just telling you, look, I'm not an anatomy student. I'm not a medical doctor, but here's what I'm telling you. I didn't even know I had an aortic valve. I didn't even know. I didn't know what an aortic valve was or what it did or what it looked like or where it was or how it functioned. I didn't even know what it was. But when it went bad, my whole body was in danger. I'm in serious danger. Guys, don't think for a second that when the Lord tells us again and again, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you, that that means you're not an important part of what he's doing. It's just that it's not what you're doing. (laughs) It's what he's doing in you. It's what he's doing through you. You are an absolutely essential part of this. God's not asking you to lose your identity in the body of Christ. He is asking you to find your identity in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. If you are a hand, it's because God wanted a hand. It's because a hand can do things that a foot can't do. A hand can do things that an eye can't do. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a well-known illustration. Paul gives it multiple times in the New Testament. He says the church is a body, and he compares us to a body. Pick it up in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. But even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, there's that word again, 
We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. (laughs) I like that. You know what he's saying? If you're a foot, and you don't like being a foot, you go, it stinks to be a foot. You know what God's saying to you? Quit your whining and walk because that's what I made you for. How many of you sit here and you listen to these musicians and you go, oh, I wish if I could just sing like Ricky, if I could just, you know, play those drums. If I, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of a gift? If you don't, it's for a reason. It's because you'd be a terrible worship leader. Okay? He didn't make you. You're a foot. You're a foot. Find a shoe. Start to walk. You're a foot, right? You're not a set of vocal cords. If you're not a set of vocal cords, you can praise the Lord at the top of your lungs. The scripture says, make a joyful noise, right? Make your noise, just not with a microphone, okay? (laughs) That's all I'm saying. He didn't make you for that. If you're a foot, be a foot. I just find that sarcasm funny. I, I, I like sarcasm. Um, verse 16, if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that'd be freaky. But if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. As who desired? He desired. (laughs) Did he ask you? (laughs) He never asked me. I'm telling you, if he asked me, I would not be a pastor. I would not be a pastor if he asked me. But I'm so glad he didn't ask me. Just as he desired, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. If he made you a hand, it's because the body needs healthy hands or healthy feet or healthy eyes, a healthy pancreas, a healthy heart valve. Guys, no one ever sees the heart valve. No, nobody, nobody ever said to me, oh my gosh, what a beautiful aortic valve. No one ever said that to me. They also said, what a beautiful hairstyle. No one ever said that either, right? There, there are parts of the body that are not even visible to most people, but they're essential. What about the people that God just prompts to pray their brains out until revival comes? And they're just in a prayer closet somewhere and nobody knows. What about the nurse that just gives that extra care to the patient who is miserable to be around and always complaining and just shines like Jesus and gets to share Jesus because of that? Guys, there are so many needs that God shapes us for different purposes. You are essential to the whole. It's not the same without you. If you're not doing your thing, your thing is not getting done. And when every part does its thing, the whole body can do its thing. And what is its thing? To bring glory to God. That's what we're here for. So, this was my halftime pep talk. Get off the bench. It's the fourth quarter, guys. Get in the game. 
because God made you and he equipped you and he's changing you so that he can use you for his glory. And stop making it about noticeable results. But I witnessed to all my neighbors and they all shut their door in my face. Were you faithful? It is required of a servant that one be found faithful. Were you faithful? That's the question. Success is being pleasing to God. It's not some outcome. I can preach my guts out and literally you all fall asleep. And, and I have to go to God and say, I'm sorry, Lord. I must, this is a worse sermon. Everybody slept through the whole thing. And God would say, you were faithful. You were faithful as those sleeping knuckleheads were not so faithful. You're faithful, guys. It's required that a servant be found faithful. So get off the sidelines, get off the bench, get in the game. And when God's people are united around him, there's no limit to what God can do through us. 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 Let's stand and pray together. Father, we are humbled to be reminded that it was with perfect care and intentionality that you created each one of us individually and shaped us and are still shaping us for the purposes that you have for our lives. Not purposes that come one day, but purposes that are true in our lives today. You've made us for a purpose. And then by your grace, you brought us together around the one rallying point that cannot be diminished, cannot be taken away, and and cannot be divided. One God, everlasting in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, around you, Lord God, we rally. We join hands. We stand and we look up to you and we lift up your name. May you receive the glory in your church, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.